If you would, stand for the reading of God's Word and our text this morning, which is found in Revelation chapter 11, and we'll be reading the passage in its entirety. This is God's Word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry exchange and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and the rewarding, uh, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and ask now that you would give us ears to hear that you would give us minds to understand, that you would stir in our wills to obey and to do what we hear. And we ask this 
in the name and for the glory of the name of Christ. Amen. Many of you may be sitting there today saying, I'm envious that I don't have to preach that one. What a text. If I was to give it an alternative title, uh, the title's pretty bland, The Two Witnesses. If I was to give it an alternative title, it would be this. Meanwhile, back on the farm. You may have noticed, but maybe not, because last, last week we ended... And we didn't go all the way to the end of chapter 10, but if you look at the end of chapter 10, uh, we are in heaven still. We are in the throne room of God still. But here in chapter 11, verse 1, we move into the earthly realm. In other words, we've gone from passages that talk about the the workings in heaven that are directing and, and that are leading and causing Uh, events on earth, and now we're going from there back down to earth where those things are happening. Meanwhile, back on the farm. And that's important to recognize. It'll help us to understand the passage this morning. The passage begins with John being given an assignment. He's he's given uh, what we would call a sign act. It's, a, it's a, an acting out of a lesson. Uh, these are common in the Scriptures. For example, uh, uh, one example was when God gave Ezekiel instructions to take a brick, to draw on it a map of the city of Jerusalem, to build a wall around it, and then to enact a siege against the brick. It was not about the brick. It was God telling His people what He was going to do, and it was a sign act. The sign act that's given to John here is to go and to measure something. We see that in verses 1 and 2. He is to go and to measure the temple. Now, when we think of measuring, generally this is what we think of, right? When we think of measuring, we, we think of taking a tape measure and determining how long or wide or how tall something is and, and measuring it to, to know Um, the distance. And that's where our minds would normally go quickly with measuring. But there's another kind of measuring that we can do. You know, sometimes we can measure something with a level to to determine if it is straight, right? If it is flat or or if it is vertically plumb. And, And it's not about the distance. It's rather about the condition of the item being measured. Is it up to some standard? Does it measure up? Now, what is going on here? What is the purpose for this sign act that God gives to John? It goes back to that theme that Brian introduced and that we'll see again and again in the book of Revelation, and that is this this theme of salvation and judgment, but linked together. If you go back in the Old Testament, remember way back when we said you, you, you need to go back and understand some things in the Old Testament to understand how uh, a hearer would have heard these words. What you learn in the Old Testament is that measuring is a symbol of both of those things, of salvation and of judgment. I'll give you two examples. You can go look them up, but in Jeremiah chapter 31, 
which you may recognize and say, that's the passage of where the new covenant is unfolded. In that chapter, it talks about one of the promises that comes out of the new covenant, and that is that God is going to spread out a measuring line over His people. In other words, He is going to set them plumb. He's going to declare them righteous and keep them in that righteousness. It's a picture of measuring as salvation. But you also find examples in the Scriptures where God says, for example, in 2 Kings 21, also talking about the city of Jerusalem, that God is going to measure it and it will be found wanting. And He will bring judgment upon it. And so this act of measuring is about more than just dimensions. It's about salvation and judgment and, and God's acting in this world. Now, John is told to measure some unusual things. He's supposed to go and measure the temple and the altar and those who worship in it. Those aren't usual things to go measure, are they? That's, that's not normally like uh, something you're going to pull out your tape measure. He's not, he's not saying, go tell me if they're six foot or six foot two or give me the height of all these, these, uh, these worshipers but rather measure the spiritual condition of them. It goes beyond a physical measuring. And we see this because the temple imagery, the idea of the temple goes beyond simply the physical temple. For example, 1 Peter 2 says this in verse 4 and 5. It says that we, you and I, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. You get that altar image there. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so what John is really being given here is the task to go and to measure the people of God. The church. But then he's given another qualification, an exclusion, something not to do. He is not to measure the outer court. Now, if we were just talking about the physical temple here, uh, Brian alluded a few weeks ago or maybe last Sunday to the, the structure of the temple. There was the, the holy of holies in the center where God dwelt and was inapproachable. And then there was the, the, mo the most holy, the holy place, uh, sort of where the priests would enter only to minister on behalf of the people of God. And then there were these courts, various courts that lay outside of that. And so here he's being told, don't measure the outer court. Is he talking here about the court of the Gentiles in the physical temple? No. Because it's, it's got a meaning that is richer than that. What he's saying is measure the church, but don't measure the whole church. Well, what is the distinction being made? And again, I'll refer back. I think Brian mentioned at a point the church uh, in two different aspects we might talk of is one is the church triumphant. One is the church in heaven. One is the church gathered around the throne room with God, perfected in holiness. And he's saying, I want you to measure them, John, meaning I want you to measure them symbolically. They are at rest and protected by God. They are in perfection, and that will never change. But don't measure the part of the church that is outside of that. And that would be called the church militant, 
or the church on earth, the, the church that is yet to be brought into the presence of Christ, the, the church that in some ways is not yet under that umbrella of being glorified. That's us. And so I think you have here a beautiful picture of the church and its unity in heaven, perfected and protected by God, and the church on earth that is yet to, to enter into that state. I think there's another evidence of that, and that is that there's a reason given for why John is to measure this this way. And it is because the, it says here, because it has been given over to the nations. The church on earth has been given over to the nations. At first reading, that may sound like they've just been sort of tossed out and left there. But the language here is really this. It's really the idea that they have been given as a gift to the nations. God's people have always been given as a gift to the nations. From the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis, Abraham was told that he, uh, that he would have an offspring that will bless the nations. And then in Galatians 3.8, it picks up that same theme. It says, God foreseeing that he, uh, that, that he would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And then later on, the prophet Isaiah would say that God would give his people as a covenant to the nations, that, that he would extend them and, and give them to the nations as a gift. Uh, the New Testament picks up this imagery in, in some ways where it says things like, you are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. In other words, we are given in a, in a purposeful way by God to the nations as a part of the unfolding of his plan of redemption. That, that plan that we've been hearing about that is taking place in heaven and, and being directed through the angels out onto earth is being done through us. Have you ever thought of yourself as that? Have we ever thought of, well, what is the church? It is a gift to the nations. We're ambassadors for Christ. And Jesus said, as, as the Father sent me, so send I you. As the Father gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. As He did that, so He sends also into this world His church to proclaim that good news. What will be the response of the world? It says there that they will trample the city for 42 months. And we won't spend much time talking about that, that they will reject that message. And they will reject that gift. And they'll do it for a period of 42 months. I'm not going to get round up about what 42 months is. Brian will cover that. It comes up in the passage next week. But I love what he said when we were talking about it. And that is, it's a predetermined amount of time, but it is a temporary period of time. It is in God's... Uh, ordination, how long that is, and it is not forever. That's the important thing. So what we see, first of all, is we see that God has a part for His church and His plan. Well, how do we do that? What does that look like for us? That's the next section, verses 3 through 13, where we see these two witnesses. This is a, a picture I drew. I had to draw it three times because I'm not a very good at drawer. 
And that's why I draw these ahead of time. Because you would not want to sit here and watch me draw something three times. We can get into the weeds here. So I'm going to keep us out of the weeds. But we have this account of two witnesses. Amy and I last week were out of town. One of the things we did was we went to Asheville. And I don't know about you, but I love it when you're driving uh, along and you come over the crest of a hill and there are the mountains, right? Uh, we used to do that. We'd drive up north on I-26 uh, to the Carolina border and we like come over the crest like, ah, there's the mountains. Or as you even drive along here on 221 and you look out the right side as you're heading toward Forest and you say, there's the mountains. Um, in those cases, the mountains are just one mountain range. But we came over this hill, and there were like mountains and mountains and mountains, like various ranges of mountains. And this passage is a little bit like that. There are, there are different ranges. There's a range where some of this passage is referring to things in the Old Testament types. And then there's another range where it changes in... It's talking about something more into the realm of the original audiences and what, what they would have been looking and hearing. And then there's us. And it all sort of blends together in a, in a glorious and a useful way. Let me show you what I mean. If you look at the passage, you will see that there are some descriptions given of these two witnesses. Uh, one of the descriptions in verse 5 is that uh, out of their mouths come devouring fires. Well, who, who is that? What is that speaking of? I think it goes back to the account of the prophet Elijah. Uh, Ahaz, um, Ahaziah, the king, had uh, fallen through the latticework on his house and was injured and wanted to know if he was going to recover or die. He had fallen seriously. So he sent out to, uh, to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, not to the God of Israel, but to this foreign God. And he sent out a captain of his army with 50 men to go find out. Well, Elijah met them on the way and called down fire from heaven and it incinerated them. And so the king decided to try again and he sent out another 50 men with another captain. And, and Elijah met them and did the same thing, called up fire and it incinerated and devoured them. And I think this is the account and it's pointing to the idea of Elijah. The reason I say that is it also goes on and says that these two, these two witnesses will shut up the skies and no rain will fall. And, and that picks up again the theme of Elijah and his ministry. But then it goes on and it says that these two will turn the water to blood. Does that ring a bell? That's the first plague of Egypt. That's Moses. Turning the Nile River into blood. It goes on and then says, and they'll bring every plague, every kind of plague, meaning the ten, the fullness of plagues. And so what we have here is we have a picture of Elijah and Moses, and they're sort of, notice this, they're conflated together. In other words, they're spoken of as if they both did these things. Moses never called down fire. Elijah never turned the water to blood but they're spoken of as if they're together. Now hold that thought. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But then it moves on, and it begins to say some things that don't fit Moses and Elijah. For example, it says that they were both killed. Well, if you know the 
the, the finality of what happened to Elijah, he was taken up into glory in a, in a chariot. He didn't die and he wasn't killed. And Moses was taken out, shown the promised land, but told and reminded by God he would not enter it. And it says he died and God buried him. He wasn't killed. And so something else is happening here because these two are said to be killed. And then it says that after three and a half days that the breath of life would come into them and they would rise. That's the resurrection. And then it says that the voice from heaven would call come up here and they would ascend in the clouds. Who are we talking about now? Christ. And then the other is a little hard to discern, but notice in the beginning it says these two witnesses in verse 3 are wearing sackcloth. We're never told about, uh, when you think of sackcloth, who wore sackcloth in the Scriptures? John the Baptist. And it's not quite plain, but it says that their body was not allowed to be buried. It laid in the street for three days. And then it says that they was rejoicing and they threw a party and they made merry and they gave gifts to one another, celebrating it. You remember when John the Baptist was beheaded? Where was it? What was the event? It was the birthday party. Right? It was a birthday celebration. What do you do at a birthday celebration? You make merry and you give gifts. And in the midst of their merriment and gift giving, that's when John was beheaded. So what you have is this Old Testament statement that sort of moves into something more present. And notice again, you have this linguistic conflation of them all. It, it speaks of them as if they all did this. It doesn't separate them out and say, well, Jesus did this and Moses did that. It sort of says they all did all of these things. Why? I think that's what the main point is here. This is sort of weeds. But the main point would be this. The ministry of these four was one. It was a continuation of one ministry. They were all part of one plan. And, and they all coalesced together, and their ministries had the same purpose. And not only that, but they were all given as gifts to the nations. That their ministry was to call the nations to the living God. So what does that mean for us, the church? We're called the same way. As these four were gifts as these four proclaimed, the summary of their ministry is summed up in the phrase that when their testimony was finished, they were killed. They, they testified to Christ. And that is what we do. Listen to this. This is the verse of our, of our church. Listen to how it pertains to this. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we are a continuation as a church of this ministry of proclaiming and testifying 
to God among the nations. That's how we are to be a gift to the nations. We learn as application, we learn some helpful things here along the way. For example, sackcloth. We learn that part of our ministry to the world is to be broken over the sins of the world. That's why John wore sackcloth. We learn about the ministry being that of the Word, of a proclaiming and a preaching of the Word. We don't call down fire like Elijah did. Remember, two disciples wanted to do that, and Jesus said, that's not how we're doing things now. Now it's through the Word, through the sword of the Word and preaching the gospel. There was prayer. The example of Elijah of holding up the skies isn't to be a fanciful trick, but it was to show the necessity of prayer as a part of his ministry. There's the two olive trees, and we won't get into this now, but it'll come up again later in Revelation, but the idea of of the Spirit of God empowering, the oil that gives fuel to that work of testifying. We see that there'll be opposition. And then finally we see this, that these two witnesses stand before the Lord. In other words, they may be rejected by the world, they may be killed by enemies, but before the Lord they stand. Who may stand before the Lord? No one. And yet these two witnesses stand. And that's the picture. Remember the churches, the seven churches of chapter 2 and 3? To the ones who overcome, we could substitute in there, to the ones who are found to be standing before the Lord. So that brings us then to the seventh trumpet. At the end of our passage, verses 14 to 19. It's sort of like the interlude is over. Remember the sermon title, Meanwhile, Back on the Ranch? Well, guess what? We just jump in verse 14 back into heaven. Back into heaven, it says uh, in verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. I love the imagery here. I think we can just read Scripture some time and, and gloss over sort of the details of it. But think of it this way. This is almost like John is in a daydream, right? And he's, he's going to earth and he's picturing the church and he's picturing its witness and its testimony and its, its proclaiming the gospel and how it fits into the bigger picture of what God has always been doing through his people. And then he's sort of in a, in a daydream and then all of a sudden that's interrupted by this blast of a trumpet. You ever been woken up like that? You ever been, I mean, I intentionally set my alarm to be that, that setting. I love the fact that I can have this setting that starts low and gets louder. Because I remember as a kid, back in high school, I had this alarm that would just make me leap out of my skin. You know, you'd be like in this wonderful slumber, and you'd be like, you know, alert and, and almost upset and shaking. John is awakened by this trumpet blast, right? And then look at what he hears. He hears something. He hears this statement. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. If this is the end of the interlude, the beginning part of that was the six trumpets, you remember that was a lot of judgment. And sort of John has dozed off, and now he gets awakened to a completely different message, doesn't he? It's sort of a picture of what life in this world for the church is like. It it's, it's more resembles the six trumpets and the judgment and, and living in a fallen world and, and longing for that home 
that we sang about where Christ is going to take us, that home He's preparing. And it's almost like your soul can be lulled into a sleep, and then suddenly one day, we're told the return of Christ will be sudden. One day, bam, that trumpet will shock us, and, and the declaration will be the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of Christ. I wonder if John woke up and thought, what have I missed? It was all judgment, and now look what it is. It says, in the twinkling of an eye, Christ will come and He will make all things new. And so that promise is out there to us. The seventh trumpet is different, but it's the same as the seventh seal and the seventh bowl. They are cyclical stories of the history and of what God is doing, but notice that the seventh seal ends with judgment. The seventh bowl will end with the pouring out of the cup of God's wrath. But the seventh trumpet ends with the declaration of the kingdom of God being brought in. It's almost like in the midst of these bookends of judgment, God places this statement of salvation right in the middle. This is what was declared in Daniel 7, 14, where the Ancient of Days, uh, where the Lord ascended and it said, to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let me close with three quick takeaways from this last section of this passage. The first is this. If you look in, in verse... Um, if you look in verse... 17... The declaration here is that they fell on their faces and worshiped God. They said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. And then this phrase, who is and who was. Do you notice something missing there in that declaration? Back in chapter 1, verse 4, the declaration, who was and is and is to come. But you notice here, that is left off. They're praising the one who was and who is, but the is to come is not there yet. He is coming, but it's not there yet. The other phrases in this declaration, he has taken his great power. In other words, it's not a question of whether or not, we're not, we're not waiting for the day that Christ will take his great power. He's already taken that great power, and he has begun to reign. We're not waiting for the the beginning of Christ to come and start ruling. He has already begun to rule in heaven with that great power, but it is not yet fully our possession, is it? This is what theologians call the already, not yet scenario. Christ is already in heaven. He is already ruling. He is already powerful. He is already over all creation, but we do not yet experience that here on earth in its fullness. The first takeaway is that we should be encouraging one another while we live in this in-between time. A great resource for that is the books of First and Second Thessalonians. They speak directly to that subject of how are we to encourage and, and exhort and help one another and, and what are we supposed to be doing with our lives in the middle while we wait. The second takeaway is this that there are rewards here. 
and they are sandwiched between judgments. Notice it begins and says, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants. And then it goes back at the end and says, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So destruction and destruction, wrath, destruction, but in the midst, rewards. An encouragement to us is that Christ is blessing. He is keeping. He is building His church. And He is bringing rewards. We partake of the benefits of Christ today in part. One day we'll fully experience those blessings, those benefits, where not only is the penalty of sin dealt with, but even the power and the presence of it removed. And then lastly, a third takeaway is we get a wonderful call in the middle of this passage, these verses for the church. Notice the rewarding, and then three statements are made about us. We're called servants, we're called prophets, and we're called saints. And those are three wonderful terms. You think of servants, uh, that we are those who serve and worship the Lord. In the midst of a, a fallen, broken world, we are to live lives that worship the Lord that are wholly devoted to Him. That is part of our witness. The living unto the Lord is a part of our witness. Uh, that, that they would see how we love one another and, and that that would declare that these are the people of God. And so our lives are to be lived before the Lord in that way. But then also we're prophets. We're to have a message. We're to, we're to be uh, God's spokespeople. It's not simply that we live and serve the Lord and worship Him on Sunday mornings, but we, we go and we declare His excellencies. We proclaim His excellencies to the nations, to our neighbors, to our families. And then lastly, saints. We're called to be set apart to a holiness, to be a different people. There's a wonderful picture here of what God calls us to be as a church. And I think we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of the body of Christ and that we are part of this continuation of what God has always been doing and that, it, that at the end of that, the day that He comes, when the trumpet blasts, when we're awakened from some of our spiritual slumber, um, that we will then be brought into the presence of Christ rewarded, and He will be declared to be the King over all the earth. Will you pray with me? Father, as we think of being servants and prophets and saints, reminded that we need to be all three of those. If we come to worship and serve You as servants, and as we declare and proclaim Christ, but if we are not living holy lives, then our witness and testimony is fruitless. And Lord, we can come and worship You and we can live holy lives and seek You, but if we don't open our mouths, if we're never a prophetic voice, then Father, we're not bearing testimony to You. We're not living into the calling that You have for us. And Father, if we are living holy lives and witnessing You, but we're detached from Your people, that we are not a part of the body and we're not in worshiping You, 
and never in your presence. And Father, so we see these are the three things we must be, that we're called to be. Oh, Father, that you would do that, that you, as you build your church, as you build this church, that we would be a body that is holy and set apart to you, that we would be a a body that worships you in spirit and truth, that we would be a body that declares the excellencies of your praises and your works, that, Father, you would draw the nations to yourself. Send us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen.